Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 36, entitled Michael Collins, 1890-1922, Hazel Lavery, and The Darker Side. I hope you like this and you will share it with others on social media. The Laveries lent their palatial house at number five Cromwell Place in South Kensington to the Irish delegation led by Michael Collins during negotiations for the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921. After the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the Irish Free State Government invited John Lavery to create an image of a female personification of Ireland for the new Irish banknotes. This personification of Ireland was a portrait of Hazel Lavery as Kathleen Nee Houlihan, painted by her husband in 1927 and was reproduced on banknotes of Ireland from 1928 until the 1970s. It then appeared as a watermark until the punt was replaced by the euro in 2002. John Lavery, originally from Belfast, became an official artist for the British government during World War I. In 1918, he received a knighthood, and Hazel Lavery became Lady Lavery. Born in Chicago on the 14th of March, 1880, Hazel Martin was the daughter of Edward Jenner Martin, a wealthy industrialist of Irish descent. After Hazel Lavery died in 1935 in London, a memorial service for her took place at the request of the Irish government. There has been speculation about Hazel Lavery's relationship with Michael Collins and Kevin O'Higgins. According to the memoirs of Derek Patmore, a writer, artist and interior designer who was a close friend of Hazel Lavery's, Collins was the great love in her life and that Sir Shane told me that when Michael Collins was killed in an ambush, they found a miniature of Hazel hanging around his neck with a poem Shane Leslie had written to her on the back of it. However, historian Mida Ryan has cast doubts on these rumours. Ryan states that, In all the research I have done, I have found no evidence whatsoever that he had an affair with Lady Lavery. Shane Leslie, 1885-1971, also known as Sir John Randolph Leslie, was an Irish-born diplomat and writer. He was a first cousin of Sir Winston Churchill. In 1908, Leslie became a Roman Catholic and supported Irish home rule. He was in the British Ambulance Corps during World War I, invalided out, He was then sent to Washington, D.C. to help the British ambassador, Sir Cecil Spring Rice, soften Irish-American hostility towards England in the aftermath of the 1916 Easter Rising in Dublin and the execution of its leaders by the British. But he also looked to Ireland for inspiration when writing and editing a literary magazine that contained much Irish verse. 
he became a supporter of the ideals of Irish nationalism, although not physical force republicanism. Thomas Springrice, first Baron Monteagle of Brandon, 1790 to 1866, was a British Whig politician who served as British Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1835 to 1839. He was the grandfather of Cecil Springrice. Thomas Springrice was well regarded in Limerick, where he was seen as a compassionate landlord and good politician. He strongly believed in ensuring society was protected from conflict between the upper and lower classes. During the Great Famine of the 1840s, Springrice responded to the plight of his tenants with benevolence. The caring and more bearable measures he implemented on his estates almost bankrupted the family, and only the dowry from his second marriage to Marianne Marshall saved his financial situation and allowed him to maintain his estates at Mount Trenchard near Foynes in County Limerick. A monument in honour of him still stands in the People's Park in Limerick. In the 1918 election, the Irish Parliamentary Party lost massively to Sinn Féin, putting an end to Shane Leslie's political career. But as the first cousin of Winston Churchill, he remained a primary witness to much that was said and done outside the official record during negotiations of the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. Cahill Brewer and Austin Stack were two of the most prominent critics of Michael Collins and his ways, according to Tim Pat Coogan. Collins incurred Stack's enmity when in front of colleagues he told Stack that his management of his department was a bloody disgrace, and so Stack had his reasons to resent and dislike the dynamic Collins. I'll get even with you, he told Collins. Brewer's antipathy towards the IRB indeed gave him a particularly odd attitude towards Collins, and as Minister for Defence, Brewer was nominally Collins' superior and now regarded his activities with ever-growing suspicion. Cahill Brewer, 1874-1922, became a lieutenant in the Irish Volunteers in 1913. He led a group of 20 volunteers to receive the arms smuggled into Ireland in the Hoth gun running of 1914. He was second in command at the South Dublin Union under Commandant Eamon Kent in the Easter Rising of 1916. On the Thursday of Easter week, being badly wounded, he was unable to leave when the retreat was ordered. Carl Brewer, weak from loss of blood, continued to fire upon the enemy. He was found by Eamon Kant singing God Save Ireland, with his pistol still in his hands. He was initially not considered likely to survive. He recovered over the next year, but was left with a permanent limp. Brewer was elected Kion Corla of Dáil Éireann at its first meeting on the 21st of January 1919, and he read out the Declaration of Independence in Irish, which ratified the establishment of the Irish Republic. On the following day, the 22nd of January, he was appointed President of the Ministry Pro Tempore. He retained this position until the 1st of April 1919, when Eamon de Valera took his place. He had differences with Michael Collins, 
who although nominally only the IRA's Director of Intelligence, had far more influence in the organization as a result of his position as a high-ranking member of the IRB, an organization that Prue saw as undermining the power of the Dáil, and especially the Ministry for Defence. On the 7th of January 1922, Brewer voted against the Anglo-Irish Treaty. During the treaty debates, he pointed out that Michael Collins had only a middling rank in the Department for Defence, which supervised the IRA, even though Griffith hailed him as the man who had won the war. It has been argued that by turning the issue into a vote on Collins's popularity, Brewer swung the majority against his own side. Frank O'Connor, in his biography of Collins, states that two delegates who had intended to vote against the treaty changed sides in sympathy with Collins. Brewer left the Dáil and was replaced as Minister for Defence by Richard Mulcahy. On the 28th of June 1922, Brewer was appointed Commandant of the Anti-Treaty Forces in O'Connell Street. The outbreak of the Irish Civil War ensued in the first week of July when free state forces commenced shelling of the anti-treaty positions. Most of the anti-treaty fighters under Oscar Trainer escaped from O'Connell Street when the buildings they were holding caught fire, leaving Cahalbrua in command of a small rear guard. On the 5th of July 1922, he ordered his men to surrender, but refused to do so himself. In Thomas Lane, he then approached the Free State troops, brandishing a revolver, and sustained a bullet wound to the leg, which severed a major artery, causing him to bleed to death. He died on the 7th of July, 11 days before his 48th birthday. He had been re-elected as an anti-treaty TD at the 1922 general election, but died before the doll assembled. He is buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. Austin Stack, 1879-1929, served as Minister for Home Affairs from 1921-1922. He was a TD, Chocdodala, from 1918-1927. A gifted Gaelic footballer, he captained the Kerry team to All-Ireland victory in 1904. He became politically active in 1908 when he joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood. In 1916, as Commandant of the Kerry Brigade of the Irish Volunteers, he made preparations for the landing of arms by Roger Casement. According to Tim Pat Coogan, he had been in charge of arrangements both to get Casement to safety after he landed in Kerry prior to the 1916 Rising and for the safe landing of a shipment of 20,000 German rifles around the same time. But both operations were spectacularly bungled. He was made aware that Casement was arrested on Easter Saturday and was being held in Tralee. He made no attempt to rescue him from Ballymullen Barracks. It would appear that afterwards Michael Collins let Austin Stack know on several occasions that he held him responsible for those failures. Austin Stack was arrested and sentenced to death for his involvement in the Rising. However, this was later commuted to penal servitude for life. He was released under general amnesty in June 1917 and was elected as an abstentionist Sinn Féin MP for Kerry West at the 1918 Westminster election. Becoming a member of the first Dáil, 
he was automatically elected as an abstentionist member of the House of Commons of Southern Ireland and a member of the second double as a Sinn Féin TD for Kerry Limerick West at the 1921 elections. Austin Stack, as part of his role as Minister for Home Affairs, is widely credited with the creation and administration of the Dáil Courts. These were courts run by the IRA in parallel and opposition to the judicial system being run by the British government. The IRA and Sinn Féin was highly successful in both getting the civilian population of Ireland to use the courts and accept their rulings. The success of this initiative gave Sinn Féin a large boost in legitimacy and supported their goals in creating a counter-state within Ireland as part of their overreaching goals in the War of Independence. Austin Stack opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 and took part in the subsequent civil war. He was captured in 1923 and went on hunger strike for 41 days before being released in July 1924. Stack's health never recovered after his hunger strike and he died in a Dublin hospital on the 27th of April 1929, aged 49 years. Erskine Childers was another who opposed the treaty and who it would appear was disliked greatly by Michael Collins. In his book, Michael Collins' Own Story, written by Hayden Talbot, he says, I take upon myself the responsibility of showing up the man Michael Collins counted worse than despicable. Robert Erskine Childers, 1870 to 1922, was put on trial by a military court on the charge of possessing a small Spanish-made destroyer .32 calibre semi-automatic pistol on his person in violation of the emergency powers resolution. The gun had been gifted from Michael Collins before Collins became head of the pro-treaty provisional government. Childers was convicted by the military court and sentenced to death on the 20th of November 1922. Childers appealed against the sentence and this was heard the next day by Judge Charles O'Connor who said he lacked jurisdiction because of the civil war. The provisional government is now de jure, as well as de facto, the ruling authority bound to administer, to preserve the peace and to press by force, if necessary, all persons who seek by violence to overthrow it. He, Childers, disputes the authority of the military tribunal and comes to this civil court for protection. But its answer must be that its jurisdiction is ousted by the state of war which he himself has helped to produce. Childer's lawyer appealed to the Supreme Court, but before it was ever accepted by the court and listed as an appealable case, he was put to death. Childer's was executed on the 24th of November 1922 by firing squad at Beggar's Bush Barracks in Dublin. Before his execution, he shook hands with the firing squad he also obtained a promise from his then 16-year-old son, the future President of Ireland, Erskine Hamilton Childers, to seek out and shake the hand of every man who had signed his death sentence. His final words spoken to the firing squad were, Take a step or two forward, lads. It will be easier that way. Childers' body was buried at Beggar's Bush Barracks until 1923, 
when it was exhumed and reburied in the Republican plot at Glasnevin Cemetery. The third doll was first due to meet on the 1st of July 1922. It was prorogued on five occasions, with its first meeting successfully postponed to the 15th of July, to the 29th of July, to the 12th of August, to the 16th of August, and finally to the 9th of September. On this date, W.T. Cosgrove was appointed as president of Dáil Éireann. He formed the fifth ministry of Dáil Éireann with the same membership as the second provisional government. Whether the new house, the third Dáil provisional parliament, was a republican parliament or crown assembly was queried by some anti-treaty Irish republicans. Lawrence Gennell turned up in the assembly to demand the answer as to which category, crown or republic, it belonged. The Ceann Corla read a message from Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Fitzalan, conveying to this parliament his very best wishes, which suggests that both the Lord Lieutenant and the Ceann Corla considered this body one convened under the terms of the treaty rather than Dáil of the Irish Republic. A letter from the wife of a British nobleman describing Michael Collins as a man of brilliance as a romantic figure is to be auctioned in Dublin, leading to renewed speculation they had an affair. The Irish Times quotes from the letter from Lady Hazel Lavery, which praises Collins for his dignity, pride, wisdom, a wonderful beauty of character and qualities of statesmanship that only a few had begun to recognise. The letter, written to General Pierce Beasley, a survivor of the 1916 Rising, when he began to write a biography of Collins after his death in 1922, has come to light ahead of the sale of some Collins memorabilia. Hazel Lavery added, It is my greatest wish that something should be written about Michael that will be worthy of his greatness of mind and soul and that will show the world in the future just what he meant in his life and death to the Irish people. Rumours that Hazel Lavery had an affair with Collins while he resided in London during the Anglo-Irish Treaty Talks have never been substantiated. She was clearly taken with Collins, however, to judge by the newly discovered letter which was sent to author Pierce Beasley. Always interested in Ireland, it was Hazel who suggested to John Lavery that he create an Irish collection, and his first portraits were of Edward Carson and John Redmond in 1916. She referred to herself as a simple Irish girl, and John, of course, was an Irish Catholic. Their first visit together to Ireland was in 1913 to Lord and Lady Ken Mayer in Killarney House. The motivation of the collection and their ongoing interest and involvement in Ireland was to bring reconciliation to both sides, Protestant Unionist and Catholic Nationalist. The advent of the 1916 rebellion in Dublin shocked them, as many others. But within three weeks of the executions, John Lavery had pledged his support for the interned and on a commission from Mr. Justice Darling painted the trial of Sir Roger Casement. He received huge criticism for this. Lord Birkenhead described it as in the worst possible taste. Hazel attended the trial and was profoundly affected and became passionately concerned with Ireland's welfare thereafter. 
1915, Hugh Lane, a nephew of Lady Gregory, was drowned when the Lusitania was torpedoed off the Cork coast, and she organised artists, including John Lavery, to see that Hugh Lane's art collection came to Dublin. It is now the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin, and Lavery donated many of his paintings to it. After the general election of 1918, when Sinn Féin got over 75% of the votes and established the first doll, the scene was set for the War of Independence, 1919 to 1921. Ireland had not been represented at the 1918 Versailles Treaty, even though the Americans had indicated their desire for them to be there, as the First World War had ostensibly been fought for the freedom of small nations. Shortly after the Westminster election, Michael Collins, Robert Barton, Sean T. O'Kelly and George Gavin Duffy went to England to explain the Irish situation to the US President Woodrow Wilson, who had arrived in London on his way to Paris on the 26th of December 1918. When Wilson was unwilling to meet them, Collins was so annoyed that he suggested kidnapping the American President to make him listen. If necessary, he said, we can buccaneer him. Fortunately, nobody took the suggestion seriously, but the proposal gave insight into why some friends thought Collins sometimes allowed his desire for action to cloud his judgment. Realising that there was little chance of getting recognition at the peace conference, Collins set about preparing for a war of independence. While Dahl Aaron met, Collins was absent, busy arranging De Valera's escape from Lincoln Jail. All ordinary peaceful means are ended, and we shall be taking the only alternative actions in a short while now, Collins wrote to Austin Stack after the escape. We mean to make a public declaration before starting. In short, they would soon be declaring war on the British. Lloyd George, the Tory Prime Minister of the UK, had got everything he wanted at the Paris Peace Conference, and when it was over, felt free to turn his military might, including the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries, free against the upstart breakaway Irish. He reckoned, without the single-minded steadfastness of the Irish people, the ability of de Valera to woo the Irish-Americans in the long tour of the US, or the military genius of Collins, whose spy network penetrated to the very heart of the British Empire, even up to Lloyd George's office. Collins's agent, Moya Llewellyn Davies, nee Mary Elizabeth O'Connor, had access through her husband, Crompton Llewellyn Davis, a lawyer and close confidant of fellow Welshman David Lloyd George, for whom he acted as election agent and early sponsor. He drafted a number of land law bills for the British government and in 1908 prepared the bill that was to introduce the old age pension in Britain. For this, he was made a baron and took a seat in the House of Lords. He was also appointed legal advisor to the British Post Office, with access to many of the intelligence gathering activities of the state. Hazel Lavery personally had a meeting with Lloyd George to plead Ireland's case, but she was suspicious of his attitudes. She wrote a letter to her old friend Winston Churchill, then Minister for War, stating that the removal of the castle and all its works, leaving Irishmen to settle their own affairs, 
is the only solution left. Touring Ireland in October 1921, at the height of hostilities, they saw the destructive effect of the conflict. The Martin Farm and the rest of Ireland are going to be wiped out. John Lavery received death threats from both sides. They failed to meet Collins, whom John wanted to paint for a portrait. Back in London, Terence McSweeney died on hunger strike, and in December, the Government of Ireland Act was passed. Around this time, Hazel became a Catholic. John and Alice already were, and Alice quipped, Why do you want to become a Catholic? You are such a bad Protestant. A truce was agreed in July 1921, and the Laveries offered the use of their home as a neutral ground where both sides might meet. In July, De Valera, Griffith, Barton, Stack and Childers went to London for talks, and De Valera met Lloyd George four times, but they made little progress, De Valera wanting a republic. Lloyd George offered only dominion status. John did portraits of De Valera and Griffith. On the 10th of August 1921, the Irish cabinet officially rejected the proposals. In September, De Valera accepted an invitation for new talks, and a new delegation led by Griffith went over. Michael Collins was included against his will, but joined Griffith, Childers, Barton, Duggan and Gavin Duffy. He stayed separately in Han's place, protected by his squad. Negotiations started in October, and official sessions during the day were complemented by unofficial sessions in the evening at the Lavery's home. John had started painting portraits. Collins set for him on the 16th of November. Hazel and Sir Shane Leslie met privately with Lloyd George for talks on the issues. All of the Irish delegates except Erskine Childers visited the Lavery home and Collins and Hazel met each morning at Mass at 8am in the Brompton Oratory. Their old friendship renewed, they became exceptionally close and rumours in London hinted at a love affair. There is no evidence of this. They were soulmates rather than bedmates, according to Shane Leslie's wife, Anita. Michael Collins used Hazel as an agent in the sense that he wrote frequently to her with some instruction, but it was couched in friendly semi-romantic prose, which he did with all his agents, who were by and largely female. Hazel showed these letters around, thus fueling the affair idea. With the negotiations becoming critical, Lloyd George's skill as a negotiator and manipulator came to the fore, and he outrageously tricked Griffith into signing up for the Boundary Commission, telling him it would sort out the North-South problem. Hazel, knowing that Dominion status was all that was on offer, urged Collins to take what you can get now and get the rest later. She drove him to meet Lloyd George on the 4th of December in Downing Street who talked to him about the Boundary Commission. On the 5th of December, Lloyd George waved two letters before the Irish delegation, one for peace and one for war, and that he needed an answer by 10pm. The Irish delegation were in a cruel position, but at 2am on the 6th of December, they signed a treaty, which created a free Ireland, but not under the conditions they wanted. Lord Birkenhead said to Collins he was signing his political death warrant. Collins replied, I may have signed my actual death warrant, a prophetic statement. He went back to the Lavery home in quite an agitated state, 
where Hazel and John tried to console him. He felt, as he stated in the dull debate, that they had won freedom. That is, the freedom to achieve Republican freedom. And the Dáil voted on the 7th of January 1922 by 64 votes to 57 to uphold the treaty. Eamon de Valera and his followers walked out of the Dáil and the task of setting up the Free State Government was left to Griffith and Collins. Unfortunately, the stage was being set for civil war. Not as the British feared between North and South, but tragically between pro and anti-treaty sides.